0: Okay, let's pray. And we'll get into God's word this morning. We're gonna look at Galatians chapter two, verse one through sixteen. So, Lord, just come before you today. Thank you again, Lord, just for safely getting us here. Thank you, Lord, for the just the blessing it is to have a live stream and for people to connect with us that way. And we ask, God, that you just breathe life into the teaching of your word. Today, Lord, we thank you that your word is a living word, that you have exalted above all things, even above your own name, as it says in Psalm 138. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word. I just ask for the gift of teaching this morning, for the spirit of prophecy. We pray, God, that our hearts would be open to receive and that we would understand your grace, Lord. We need a, a revelation of the spirit for that to happen. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, the word of God would move from just being head knowledge for us into our hearts and transform our lives. And so, God, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Galatians chapter 2. Um, Paul's written, as we've seen, this letter to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia, the southern part and these churches were churches that he had planted he had established them after he had been there a a group of jewish false teachers had infiltrated the church and they were driving a wedge between paul and the folks in these churches and so in chapter 1 paul did two things primarily he he did this he established his own apostleship, because they were attacking his leadership. They said, you're not, you know, Paul's not really a leader. He's not really an apostle, sorry. And so he went on uh, to establish that he was an apostle, not called by men, but God had called him to this role to serve the church. And then he went on to also establish that the gospel that he preached did not come to him from men, but it came to him by a revelation of Jesus Christ. His gospel came from God and not from man. Okay, so two things. He establishes where his gospel came from and his personal call upon his life to be an apostle. And now here in chapter two, he's going to demonstrate this, that the gospel that he was preaching, the gospel that he preached in Galatia, the gospel that he preached everywhere that he went was not a different message than the preaching of the other apostles. He had not added to the gospel. He had not subtracted from the gospel, but he preached uh, the gospel of grace. He preached justification by faith. And uh, in this chapter, these verses that we're going to look at, Paul's going to do uh, two things that we're going to consider today. He's going to share about a consultation that he had with the other apostles, and he's going to share about a conflict that he had with Peter. And it's interesting because the consultation that he had with the other apostles happened in the Jewish city of Jerusalem, and the conflict that he had with the apostle Peter happened in the Gentile city of Antioch. So, you know, it's interesting, this whole Jew-Gentile thing is very significant to this conversation that we're going to have. And I think this, you know, in many ways, it's kind of hard for us to understand these dynamics in our generation, the days in which we live. The Jewish Gentile relationship that was going on into, in, in the early church. So, I want to talk about that for a minute because the Jews were the nation to whom God had revealed his law. They were the covenant people of God from generation to generation. To them had been given the law, to them who had been given the prophets, to them had been given the land of Israel. They were the covenant people of God uh, from the time of Abraham, and God had given them a religious rite, a practice that they went about that identified them as the covenant people of God, and that practice was male circumcision. And the Jews would refer to themselves as the circumcised, and they would refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. And when they did so, it was like a slanderous thing. It was like a it was like slang against Gentiles, because Gentiles did not follow the law of God. they were not God's covenant people. so the Jews considered them sinners, they called them sinners, they called them the uncircumcised and in in the culture in that culture, the Jewish culture, one thing a Jew would not do was this, is they would not share a meal with a sinner. They wouldn't sit around the table with a sinner. And so the false teachers that had crept into the Galatian churches and perverted the gospel of grace were teaching that that salvation, uh, well, they were messing with the, the message of the gospel and they were perverting that gospel of grace that is a message of faith alone through grace alone by Christ alone. And the false teachers were teaching this, that once a Gentile came to faith in Jesus, they needed to conform to Jewish law. They needed to add Jewish law and essentially become Jewish. And the sign that you're part of God's covenant people was circumcision. Now, you might squirm when you hear that. You know, I think the men are squirming when you hear that. And I would tell you, that is exactly the spiritual response that should happen inside of you. You squirm in the physical, but you should squirm in the spiritual at any suggestion that there is an addition to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel of grace was the message that Paul had preached. It was a a gospel message that broke down dividing walls, not only between God and his creation, but it broke down dividing walls between Jew and Gentile because the reality is, is that no one can be justified before God by the law. No one can be justified by their good works. In fact, we know this as followers of Jesus, the law was never given to the Jewish people to be a means by which they were to justify themselves. The law was given and is given to reveal our sin, to reveal our desperate need for for grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. So in this Jewish-Gentile struggle, it might be hard for us to grasp, but what we need to know is this as we come to this text this morning. This was the foremost struggle in the early church. And so I think this, it's actually not irrelevant for us because each generation has to learn what God was teaching them. Every follower of Jesus has to learn this, that we are justified by faith, that the gospel is a gospel of grace, the unmerited favor of God. And it's a doctrine that can't be understood simply by a mental assent. We need a spirit revelation to our own hearts and so this morning as we come to this text let me just preface it with this there are six characters that are significant to this text today three of them are from a gentile church and three of them are from a jewish church three or i would say this three of them come from a church in a gentile region and three of them come from a church in jewish regions so from the gentile region you have paul they're coming from antioch so you got Paul, we know him, the apostle to the Gentiles. You got with Paul a man by the name of Barnabas. He's one of Paul's closest associates in the ministry. When the church was taking shape and the gospel was, was launching amongst the Gentiles in the city of Antioch, Paul or sorry, Barnabas was sent from the church in Jerusalem and he was sent there to go and disciple and to, to teach what, uh, the believers in Antioch. And so when he saw what was happening, he got excited and he knew that he needed help. And he had heard about this guy, Saul of Tarsus. So Barnabas went to the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, and he recruited Paul to come and join him. And Paul came to Antioch, and together they served the church in Antioch. And from Antioch, the two of them went out on the first missionary journey and establish these churches in Galatia. So you got Paul and you got Barnabas. And then you have a third character that's going to come from this Gentile church, a man by the name of Titus. We, of course, we know there's a New Testament letter that's written to him. And Titus was a Gentile believer. He was a young man who became one of Paul's sons in the faith. And uh, he was a Gentile. He was won to Christ by the ministry of, Of Paul. So from the Gentile region, you got Paul, you got Barnabas, you got Titus. Then there are three characters from the church in Jerusalem you got Peter, you got John, and you got James. Now, this isn't James, John's brother. Then you remember the two sons of thunder, John and James. This isn't James, John's brother, because John's brother, James, was martyred by Herod right early on in the book of Acts. So this is not the same James. This James is James, the brother of Jesus. So you get Peter. We know know Peter. He's one of the most prominent uh, apostles in the early church. He was the first to preach Christ in Jerusalem the day the church was born at Pentecost. Uh, When the Spirit was outpoured, Peter was the first person to preach the gospel in Samaria. Peter was the first person to preach the gospel to to Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 tells us that story. He was The Lord spoke to him in a vision and he went to the house of Cornelius, proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his household was saved. So Peter's very significant. He, he, he's the one God uses to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He initiates each one of those gospel infiltrations. Then you got John. It's with him. John authored the gospel of John. Uh, he authored the three smaller letters that bear his name. He authored the book of Revelation. He's John of the inner core of the disciples, one of the inner three with Jesus. And then you have James, the Lord's brother, his half-brother. Remember this? Jesus, of course, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. James was his half-brother conceived of Joseph and Mary. He was the younger brother of Jesus. And what's interesting about James is this, is that the Gospels document that James did not believe in Jesus. During the life of Jesus, James did not follow his ministry. He thought his brother was crazy. He thought he was out of his mind. At one point in time, he went with his brothers to seize Jesus because he thought he was nuts. So James didn't believe in Jesus he believed that he was out of his mind he did not confess that his brother was Lord that is until the death and resurrection of Jesus which is amazing I mean this is just amazing evidence to the reality of the work of Christ because James life was transformed when he met Jesus raised from the dead the resurrection of Jesus convinced James that his brother was more than what he had previously understood. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus personally met with James after the resurrection, and James confessed his brother as Lord, confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and he became probably the most prominent leader in the early church in Jerusalem. So you got these three guys from the Gentile church. You got Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. And you got from the Jerusalem church, Peter, James, and John. They're going to come together, and they're going to meet in Jerusalem and have this consultation. So check it out, verse 1, it says this, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So okay, here's Paul. It's fourteen years after he's met Jesus. So he's been walking with Jesus for a while. He's been doing the ministry thing for a while. We we saw this that he had spent three years in Arabia at one point in time. He had come out of the wilderness. He had gone to Jerusalem and spent fifteen days with Peter. And then he left Jerusalem, and for 11 years, he had never returned to Jerusalem. He'd gone to Tarsus. He'd been recruited by Barnabas, come to Antioch. He had participated in the first missionary journey. And over those years, Paul had primarily been based in, in Antioch, and he'd been hanging out with Barnabas. And they had gone, and they ministered the gospel among the Gentiles. And what was happening was this, is that everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, they were, they were dogged by these false teachers. They were dogged by these men constantly coming in and preaching the law. Constantly coming in and preaching circumcision. Constantly coming in and preaching the, mes- the message of Jesus plus. You have to add to the grace of God by your own works. You've got to add to the cross. So by a revelation from God, Paul felt compelled. The Spirit spoke to him. He felt compelled finally to go back to Jerusalem and lay before the apostles there, before Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the church, to lay before them the gospel that he preached. God told him to go. So he goes with Barnabas. He goes with Titus. They gather for this private meeting and Paul lays out to Peter, John, and James the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles all these years. And he did it, he says, to establish that he had not been preaching in vain. Now, this is an interesting statement. I want to tell you this. Paul was not concerned about the content of his gospel. And when he says, I wanted to establish that I was not preaching in vain, it's not that he was concerned about the content of the gospel. Paul was convinced of the gospel. Paul was convinced that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The concern was, that his work would be in vain because there were those who were coming behind him and perverting the message of Jesus. His concern was that there would be unity between himself and Peter and the boys in Jerusalem. Having unity on the gospel with those in Jerusalem would cut off the knees of those who were being legalists, being religionists. It would pull the rug out from under their feet. It would ensure that Paul's ministry was not in vain. So to test the reaction of the apostles, Paul brought with him a Gentile. He brought with him Titus. And the question he was wondering was this, would the gospel of grace stand the test? Would the message of the gospel... um, of liberty from the law stand the test. Would a Gentile like Titus be accepted into the Jerusalem church in the heart of Jewish territory? In the heart of the church there, would Titus be accepted? Would Paul's gospel be condemned, or would it receive the stamp of, a, of the apostles' approval? So that the next number of verses tell us the answer, and we're gonna see this. Titus was accepted by Jewish believers. And in fact, they did not compel him uh, to circumcision. And Paul's gospel, the message of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, received resounding approval from Peter and John and James. And so this, what we're about to read here, was a great victory for the church, a great victory for Jewish-Gentile relations in the church. They were one in Christ. They believed the same gospel that all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, and all are justified by His grace, Jew and Gentile, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 3, there goes that tractor clearing the snow down there. We'll have to put up with that noise, okay? The guys at the back wondered if uh, his Bluetooth headset was connecting with my mic. So if things get funky here, that's what they said. I don't know if they're making up stories back there for... All of that, you know, feedback and stuff, but uh, we'll see what happens, okay? Okay, verse 3. Verse 3, it says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us to slavery, to them We did not yield submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel might be preserved. This is for us today. And so Titus, here he is, he's the test case. And he was not forced to be circumcised. He didn't have to become Jewish. He didn't have to add law to Christ. The false teachers... uh, they had crept into the church, and it wasn't to celebrate the liberty that is in Jesus. They had crept in the church to regulate people's freedom, to control. You know, I would tell you, that's what the religionist always wants. They always want control. He wants regulations for others and rules for himself to justify themselves. Control, that's what religionists want. That's what legalists want. And control is established by rules and regulations. I want to tell you this. We preach here a gospel of grace. Faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And the Bible says this, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And he who does not believe in the Son of God, the wrath of God remains on him still. Our message is a message of grace. And serving Christ, I want to tell you this, serving the Lord Jesus Christ is a life of true liberty and freedom, church. The world doesn't understand Christian freedom and liberty. The world views freedom Freedom, they would say, freedom is the right to do whatever you want. Christian freedom, Christian liberty is far deeper than that. Because Christian freedom and liberty has to do with being free from slavery. The world preaches a message of freedom that isn't actually a message of freedom because the world is slaves to sin. When they say freedom, they want freedom to sin. They want freedom to pursue sin. They want freedom to do whatever they want. And that is not freedom. That is to be enslaved. Because the Bible says that whatever you serve is your master. If you serve sin, then you are a slave to sin and sin will lead to your death. But if you serve Christ, you are free from the power of sin. You are free from the penalty of death. That's true freedom. That is true life. It is true liberty. And Paul had no time, and I have to tell you this, I have no time myself, I agree with Paul on this, for those who want to bring Christians into bondage, who want to bring Christians into legalism. The Bible says that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Imagine Imagine for a moment if Paul had caved to those Judaizers where our confidence as Christians had to be or our assurance was based on our efforts, our doing this, our following that law, our observing this day, our keeping this law, our circumcision. That's not freedom. Those things are bondage. Paul did not submit. He did not yield in submission so that the gospel, he says might be preserved for you. Let's read on here. Verse 6. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be uh, pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, I'm gonna just pause right there. We'll pick up verse nine in a moment. So the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Peter, Peter, Cephas, John, and James are referred to, Paul calls them as those who seem to be influential. He calls them as those who seem to be pillars of the church. And I love this. It's like Paul is not going to be overcome with too much awe of men. This is important for us. You know, the Bible tells us that God is not a respecter of persons. The Lord loves people. God loves people, but I'll tell you what, the Lord is not overawed with people because He knows what's in the heart of men. He knows what's in their heart. And the false teachers were probably the type of people that loved men. They loved the praises of men. They loved to name drop. They loved to be associated with the big names, the big dogs. They loved to act as though their ministry had the approval of Peter and James and John. Paul's not being disrespectful here. He gives gives due respect to the office of apostle, but he does not confuse the office with the man. Every office of influence is, is held by someone who is a human being. And they, in and of themselves, are inherently sinful. Only by grace are we saved. I'll tell you this. Don't, and I don't think you are, don't be in awe of a man. Me, I, I may have an office of a pastor, but I'll tell you what, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, I am condemned to sin and its consequence. Paul had a proper view of leaders in the church. He had a proper view of leaders in The Jerusalem church, they were recipients of grace just as he was. He gave respect because of their office, but he wouldn't be so foolish to be overawed by the man because Peter was a man. John was a man. James was a man. And Paul knew what was in the heart of men because he knew his own heart. And Paul says of them, They actually added nothing to my message, which is not an accusation. It's not a derogatory statement. It means they preached the same gospel I did. We were preaching the same thing. He knew that a person is not justified by works of law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, Peter, James, and John knew that, and they perceived that Paul had been given grace to preach this message. They all acknowledged that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Aren't you glad for that? That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All are sinners and all are freely justified by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace is an equal opportunity message. The church, I would say, is a group of equals. You know here, there's no caste system. You know, there's no racial system. There's no division of Jew and Gentile. It doesn't exist that we separate each other's. All there is here is this. There are sinners and there are those who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, saved. And yes, there's structure. And yes, there's leadership. But the ground is level. And so the result of this meeting in Jerusalem was no change to Paul's gospel. Nothing was subtracted, nothing was added. Verse 9 goes on, it says this, in fact, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, I like that statement, they gave the right hand of fellowship, they shook hands on it, uh, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing, Paul says, I was eager to do. So, the right hand of fellowship was extended between the Gentile church in Antioch, the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. The apostles accepted the ministry of Paul. They shook hands on it. The only difference that was recognized was the location and the geography. They said, This, Paul, we recognize you're primarily going to do ministry in regions that are Gentile. And we're primarily going to do ministry. In geographic regions that will be amongst the Jews. Culture is going to come into play here. It's going to come into play. It always does. But the gospel message that we both will preach, both to Jew and Gentile, will be the same message a message of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And so I think, you know, here they are the handshake, the apostles, three men from Antioch, three men from Jerusalem. And I think to the false teachers that were dogging Paul, this must have really ticked them off. You know, this was, this was actually like the dagger in the heart of their argument to say, you know, Paul's not really an apostle. Paul doesn't really preach the, gospel, the true gospel, you know, to, pre- to preach that a, a Gentile has to become a, a Jew. All those accusations and arguments crumbled with this meeting between these groups of men. And Peter gave one request. He said this, we just have one request as you go back. Would you remember the poor? And Paul says, love that request. I'm eager to do that. I want to remember the poor. And this is actually a funny request in one sense, because what's going on here is this. You need to know this. Jewish churches, Judean churches, the church of Jerusalem was an impoverished church. They were very financially poor. The first century Judean churches, listen to this, they knew nothing of prosperity gospel, okay? Naban and Clement did not, they could not comprehend any such thing. Because to choose Christ in a Jewish culture, in the eyes of those who didn't know Jesus, that was to reject your culture. It was to reject your Jewishness. It was to reject your heritage. It was to reject Abraham, you, you weren't seen as a fulfilled Jew. When you accepted Jesus as a Jewish person, and the same is true today, you are deemed as a traitor to your culture and to your people, and there are ramifications. Like your business could be boycotted. Your livelihood is probably going to be compromised on some level. You're going to have family members that are going to reject you. It's not in question. It's going to happen. Your landlord may pull the rug out from underneath your feet. Serving Christ came at a great cost for uh, the Judean churches, and they were impoverished because of it. So Peter says to Paul, don't forget about us. And Paul says, I won't. I will not forget. And what's amazing is this is the New Testament documents when Paul is eventually arrested that leads to the arrest that leads to his years-long imprisonment and eventual death, it happened because he had returned to Jerusalem to bring an offering to help the impoverished church of Jerusalem. So this is the consultation in Jerusalem. I want to draw three conclusions, okay? and then we'll look at the account of the conflict with Peter. First one is this, the truth of the gospel is a singular, unified message. There are not multiple gospels, okay? Whatever, you know, we see about cults and different groups and those who claim to preach uh, a gospel, there are not variations of the gospel. The gospel message, message is a unified, singular message, and the gospel can either be truly proclaimed or it can be falsely proclaimed. The gospel can be faithfully proclaimed or it can be unfaithfully proclaimed, but there are not different variations on the gospel. Secondly, the gospel does not change. There's a message going around out there, you know, amongst progressives, amongst deconstructionists, uh, in certain theological circles that would suggest, you know, the march of time has brought greater understanding to the Word of God. The march of time has brought greater clarity or understanding of the gospel. Listen, the same gospel that Paul preached, that Peter preached, is the gospel we have to be faithful to as a church. And there are those who would suggest to you that the Bible can't be trusted or that it limits our understanding of the gospel message. And I would tell you they are either con- confused or they are deceived. The gospel is an enduring message it will never pass away it is a message that makes known to mankind the reality of god's grace and his power to save a person through jesus christ his son and nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away from that it is faith alone by grace alone and christ alone and so the third thing i would say about this uh, is that the gospel has to be maintained you guys it's so like I changed the oil on my truck. It's part of the maintenance. You know, it's like I changed the oil and the oil ensures that my truck is going to, and I had fun in my truck this morning in the snow. It ensures that my truck will hopefully have a long life. But here's the thing, it's a truck. One day the truck's going to wear out. The truck is going to wear out. But I will say this, when I change the oil, I'm not changing major components, Okay. I'm not swapping out major things. What I am doing is I'm seeking to ensure the health of that which is already working. My truck works. I change the oil to ensure that it continues to work. And the gospel will not wear out like a truck. But the gospel has to be protected. The gospel has to be maintained. The purity of the gospel has to be ensured. The church has that role. We defend and we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the grounds of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that is a hill on which we will die. If it costs us our lives, we die on that hill. We do not surrender that hill. Martin Luther said this. He came to to understand this. He said, you can take away our goods, you can take away our good name. You can take away our lives. But the gospel, our faith in Jesus will suffer all things. And you will never wrestle it from our hands. When I think about this, I think this. You know, This is why the church, the, the, the church our heart towards people should always be soft and flexible. But when it comes to the truth of the gospel, our foreheads are like steel. Our foreheads are like steel. We don't move. And so Paul tells us about this consultation in Jerusalem, and then he tells another story of something else that happened at a later date between him and Peter. And Peter said, "You, You came and you visited us in Jerusalem. I want to return the favor. So Peter made the decision to go from Jerusalem and to visit the church in the Gentile city of Antioch where Paul and Barnabas and Titus were ministering. And there ended up being a conflict between Peter and Paul when this happened. And so, you know, imagine those false teachers hearing that Paul and Peter had a conflict. They say, I love this. I know it. I knew that Paul was never, he didn't measure up to Peter. But what we actually find out is this is that in the conflict, Peter was the one that was in the wrong. It wasn't Paul. Paul was in the right, and the great apostle Peter was actually in the wrong, and it was Peter who denied the gospel by what he did. So let's read about this. Verse 11. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So I mentioned this earlier, but like in Jewish culture, eating together is very considered a very intimate thing. Eating together is one of the ways that you welcome one another, that you receive one another. That's why we're having lunch together today because we love one another. We want to eat together. And, and, it's, and it's an important act of acceptance where you communicate. There's unity between us. There's agreement between us before God. So we come together to the table and we meet, we eat. But for the Jewish culture, it was also a way that you demonstrate your disapproval of a sinner the gospel tells us that the gospel accounts tell us that 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 jesus was forever eating with people that the teachers of the law the pharisees uh, didn't approve of he visited the house of tax collectors he ate and sat down with sinners and when the teachers of the law questioned him about this he said this to them he said it's It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He had not come to approve those who were righteous in their own eyes. He had come to lead the unrighteous to repentance. And eating together was such an intimate act that that a Jew would literally not eat a meal with a Gentile sinner. But the gospel broke down those barriers. The gospel broke down those barriers. Peter was the very first of the apostles to do this. He'd had a vision from God, again, Acts chapter 10, that he should call no thing unclean, that God had made all things clean, and the Lord instructed him to go to the house of a Gentile man, Cornelius, to preach the gospel with him, share Christ with him, and eat with him. And Peter did so. He went to the house of Cornelius, he shared the gospel Cornelius and his whole house became followers of Jesus, Gentiles, filled with the Spirit. And Peter learned that he, a Jew, could sit at a table with Gentiles. And the division between Jew and Gentile was erased by the gospel. Listen, this is a big deal. (laughs) It's not a small thing. And Peter set the standard. Peter set the precedent. And so when he arrived in Antioch, he was welcomed by the believers there, Gentile believers, him a Jew. They sat down at the table, they ate together. There was bacon everywhere, you know, it was a big deal. Bacon in the salad, there was bacon in the appies, there was bacon as part of the main course. They even had maple bacon donuts for dessert, okay? (laughs) Peter was living it up, you guys, he was living it up and he was enjoying the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shared a meal with those Gentile brothers and sisters. But then, Paul tells us, some of the legalists rolled into town. Paul calls them those of the circumcision. Those of the circumcision party, they showed up at Antioch, and all of a sudden, Peter was like uh, not feeling so comfortable. Eating all that bacon and hanging out with Gentiles. So what did he do? He, He pulled back he do all the churchy stuff. But he wouldn't sit down and share a meal with the Gentiles, though he was still preaching the Gospels. And it wasn't a small thing. In fact, Paul says he was succumbing to the fear of men, the fear of legalists, the fear of the circumcision party. And the problem wasn't just with Peter, because Peter swayed a lot of influence. And others began to join him in his hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, you guys. Barnabas, who had been in this city for more than a decade about the work of the ministry, hanging out with these Gentile believers in their homes, eating with them for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, he's joining Peter in his hypocrisy. Because this is the problem with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is never done as an isolated act by a single individual. Hypocrisy Always invites others in. It says, Come and validate me. Come and participate with me. Uh, uh, Approve of me. Join the ranks of the sanctimonious. And Peter's action was divisive. And what we find out was that it was spreading like gangrene, and it was not a minor issue. You know, the gangrene, it needed to be cut off. This continues in churches today. Many of the legalists that, that believers want to be approved by, you know, I would actually say this. I actually think that many of the legalists are actually outside the church in our culture. Many of the legalists that believers want to be approved by are outside of the church. And we like to think that their approval those who are preaching the legalism of our culture, we like to think that their approval somehow validates the fact that we're loving. And it's not a small issue, I would tell you this. We, we think that lots of our actions, with lots of our actions, the church demonstrates our love for people, but what it actually is, listen, it is the fear of man. It is the fear of of man, and the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. And so, the encouraging thing to me is that even the great apostle Peter was vulnerable to the fear of man. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter wrestled with such a fear of men that he succumbed and wouldn't confess Jesus in the presence of a little girl, a servant. He denied Jesus. And his battle with fear, let me say this to encourage you, didn't disappear with the resurrection. His battle with the fear of man wasn't erased at Pentecost. Peter had a lifelong battle of wrestling through the fear of man and to be faithful to the message of the gospel. You and I have that same battle. And in Antioch, just like around... The fire on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter succumbed to the fear of man. And Paul said, it's hypocrisy. And Peter, your hypocrisy won't happen in isolation. It'll spread. And it's a false gospel. And it was devastating to the church of Antioch. Let's read on here. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul confronts this this very issue. Paul saw that these actions were not in step with the gospel of grace. And he didn't let it slide. It's not like, okay, no big deal, Peter. He confronted hypocrisy. He called it out. He opposed Peter to his face. He didn't go start a blog. He didn't, you know get a, a vlog going on YouTube. He didn't go around bad-mouthing Peter. It was face-to-face. Peter had come to Antioch to hang out with Paul and the church, and so Paul confronted him face-to-face, man-to-man, apostle-to-apostle. Paul condemned Peter's actions as not being in step with the gospel. Peter, this ain't cool. He said, before the circumcision showed up, you were hanging out with us practically rolling around in bacon. Hey. Okay? No one could make enough bacon when the big fisherman was around. And now all of a sudden, you won't eat with Gentiles. This isn't a small issue, Peter. You're denying the gospel of grace. The truth of the gospel is at stake here, Peter. The foremost truth of the gospel is at stake. Grace. The unmerited favor of God that justifies a person alone before the Lord. The truth at stake was the reality that God accepts the sinner through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the the work of the cross. And so Paul says to him in verse 15, him and Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know, Peter, we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into these verses. But let me say this. The fact that Paul had first gone to Jerusalem and that the apostles there extended to him the right hand of fellowship, that was a dagger in the heart of those who Opposed Paul. And secondly, the account that Peter came to Antioch and that Paul opposed him, corrected him, uh, called him out on his hypocrisy and the fear of a man. That was like another dagger, double dagger in the hearts of the false teachers. And Peter conceded You're right, Paul. You're right. The message we preach is faith alone by grace alone and Christ alone. So I want to draw for us just two conclusions this morning and we'll wrap. First one is this. The gospel needs to be faithfully applied in all areas of our life. Peter failed to do this. And we have to be aware of our own gospel application. Do our lives preach legalism? Do our lives declare rules and regulations and works and self-righteousness or do our lives proclaim Christ and Christ alone that justification before God is by faith alone? John Stott said something about this that that I liked in my reading. He said this, of course, we're not anarchists, he said. There's a place for church discipline. There is a biblical Christian ethic by which we're called to live a life of holiness, but justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we have to faithfully apply the gospel to our own lives. The second thing is this. We also have to oppose those who deny the gospel. We have to. There are secondary issues of doctrine, 100%. But the gospel of grace is not one of them. The gospel of grace is not one of them like Martin Luther. We have to say, this is a hill we will die on. We'll die on it. It's a close-handed issue. It's a hill upon which the church must be willing to surrender life and limb. It's a close-handed issue. And so this morning as we, we, we look at this, this text, the consultation in Jerusalem, the conflict in Antioch, it's all in defense of a gospel of grace. And I'm left to ask myself, do I deny the gospel of grace by the actions of my life or does my life proclaim the gospel of grace with others? The Lord wants to deal with our hypocrisy. He wants to help us. He wants our lives to be in line with the message of the gospel. Faith alone by grace alone. Christ alone.